What's up, rockers? Welcome to another episode of the Talk Louder podcast, where we geek out on all things rock and roll. Hit that subscribe button on our YouTube channel. Leave us your likes and comments. You can also leave likes and comments on our Facebook page. Follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Instagram, and also our website, talklouderpodcast.com. I'm Metal Dave Glessner, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster. And today's conversation goes up the East Coast and lands in New Jersey. We're joined by Alan Tecchio today on the Talk Louder podcast. Alan, of course, fans of the podcast will probably know the name. He took over for Jason as the lead singer in Watchtower back in the late 80s. He's done a number of other things, man, Seven Witches, Nonfiction, Hades, um, Most so will probably he, know his uh, his his beginnings. The first time his name came on my radar was with Hades, and that would have been probably he he corrected me later on um, eloquently. I thought it was as early as eighty five, and it wasn't. It was probably in late eighty six that he and I became pen pals, and I believe it was you know there were reviews of Hades stuff and reviews of watchtower stuff in the same fanzines and, and he heard my stuff and i heard their stuff and it was just kind of this trade and he wrote me a letter sent me the vinyl and a t-shirt which i still have the t-shirt i wish i had the vinyl i don't know what happened to roommates what are you gonna do yeah um <laughs> roommate let's see 80s roommates yeah yeah uh, sketchy, sketchy equation there. Right, right, right. You, you do the best you can when you're, uh, uh, you know, 18 years old, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, bad judge of character. I don't know. We call it whatever, whatever. You yeah, know. we've all been there. Yeah. Sure, man, sure. But, but so, so him, you know, we have a lot of the same uh, boat ride, uh, me, me and Alan. So, I, you know, hearing his voice with Hades, I thought he was a good fit. So I, I championed him. Of course, Mike, my, our buddy Mike Solis took took my place for a short time, uh, and that was, you know, after Alan had refused the offer the first time. So mm -hmm. I thought, oh, Mike Solis is available. Hell yeah, that's great. And next thing you know, Alan's calling. You know, that'll fill in maybe some more gap in the story, the 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 discussions that we had today with Alan. But yeah. I got to say, I love this guy. Uh, he has supported me. He has championed me as I championed him for 40 years, you know, just forever, just since our first uh, meeting, even though that might have been pen pal or phone call in the 80s. But yeah, pretty great. An, an, an accomplished singer in his own right. And uh, he's also a, a writer. And uh, he's talking to us today about a book he put out with his buddy, uh, Frank White. Uh, Frank is a photographer. Um, and, uh, Alan is, is a writer. So the, together they pulled their talents and they put out this book called Jersey metal. And it's basically a coffee table book documenting the New Jersey heavy metal scene. And what we learned today is the book that's currently out is volume one, and they have plans for volume two and volume three. Volume one starts from 1969 to about 86. I think he I think said, I think it's 79. Did you say no, I think no, he went no. as far back as the yeah, as far back as the seventies. He captured that whole decade. I do believe is what he said, wow. uh, because there was stuff in there that they told us uh, when they were putting the book together that took place before they were old enough to even get into clubs and yeah, stuff. Yeah, so sixty nine sounds right because you know we're talking about 
uh, there's mention. I don't want to. I don't want to blow it. But let's let's say this: Frank White is an established, uh, well-published photographer. Uh, glossy magazines, books, probably album covers, blah blah blah. Uh, but he's had a camera in his hand since he was probably ten or eleven years old. Yeah. So I don't want to tell you what he what his sort of claim to fame was at his first. Uh, snuck out of the house kind of a gig but you're gonna dig the shit out of this pretty awesome this story is incredible uh in the montage you'll see a couple of pages that are directly from uh jersey metal volume one and that'll give you some giant hints as well as some great photos of alan performing in uh some of his earliest projects um this is it was it was a great conversation yeah Yeah, uh, I love the fact that they've got this book coming out. Uh, You know, we've had Juan Herrera on the Talk Louder podcast. Juan is from San Antonio. He put out a similar book that chronicles the South Texas, South Central Texas, I guess, uh, heavy metal scene. Uh, And he did a great job, full color, glossy. His book is called As Viewed from the Pit. And then, of course, there was Murder in the Front Row that came out uh, a few years ago, chronicling the Bay Area thrash metal scene. So I think it's really cool that now we're over on the East Coast and Alan and his buddy Frank put together this book called uh, Jersey Metal and sort of gives us a taste of what was going on in the in the East Coast. Yeah, there's uh, there's there's quite a difference. I feel like there's these sort of like, of course, similarities. But as viewed from the pit, uh, you know, it doesn't matter chronologically when these books were released. Um the the take on them is is different between the three of them and you know there's probably more sort of scene documentary sure. type of books that are out that we just don't know of yet sure yeah but as viewed from the pit is more of a photo book there's mm-hmm. captions from the artists there's captions from you know radio djs and record store people and stuff like that promoters and such uh but it's not like full page it's like quips and quotes mm-hmm in murder murder in the front row it's very much the same as 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 viewed from the pit but there's more uh introductions to uh you know eras of of the thrash metal scene that's what it's basically focused on yeah uh in the bay area but there's these long you know there'll be a full page or two from ron quintana uh and people like that who were basically the moses you know of that scene right yeah and and then jersey metal i feel like really documents uh in literary form, literary form documents like the whole thing which is it's gonna take you a second to read this because it's apparently this book is a little bit weighted yeah it's got a lot of it's got a lot of words in it so it's heavier uh, it's heavier on the literary side than maybe the photo side and uh, one of the things that he i'm sorry to interrupt but one of the no, things that he mentioned that i thought was really interesting is maybe uh one of the things that leads to so much verbiage if you will in this book is the fact that he and frank are also telling their personal stories so there's an autobiographical slant to this book so it's not just a historical account of the scene as it was just you know factually it's also got their anecdotes woven into it about the times they went to see so-and-so in such and such a club or whatever. So it's got a sort of a personal 
uh, touch from the from the authors mixed in with it. Yeah, the the fact that that Frank White is the photographer and seeing through his eyes and telling the story about how his journey began as a photographer. Yeah. And then Alan's take, I believe he said he started, he didn't want to start from when he was a child and just getting into music or what he, you know, what color his tricycle was and shit like that. It was more right. about like when he fell in love with music and decided that he wanted to be in a band. Yeah. And that's yeah. A, that's similar. It just uh, happened a little earlier for Frank as, as, you know, he wanted to get behind the camera. Right. So just some yeah. discovery and, and story of that, which is, is going to be fantastic. I, I can't wait to get my hands on the book. Yeah. Great conversation today. I really enjoyed uh, hearing about the making of the book. And of course, I also enjoyed hearing the stories of how he ended up in Watchtower and the camaraderie that the two of you have shared for 40 years or whatever it's been. So uh, long time coming. I'm glad we finally got him. Alan Tecchio on the Talk Louder podcast. <laughs> now so weren't you a a weren't you a uh I, i'm gonna get this wrong weren't you in real estate for a for a while i was i was i was selling restaurants uh for a restaurant company restaurant real estate brokerage for about 12 years and uh wow, that's a that's a stretch it was good. My last gig was 18 years selling advertising and both right. gigs were straight commission. So no salary, just like make it happen on your own back. And I made it work in both of those scenarios. Some weird stuff went down with my last gig for sure. Uh, I don't know exactly what happened and I don't really want to get too crazy. No, into the no, week. no need. But what you, what are you doing now? You've got something new. I saw, I saw a, a post and there was like a congratulatory from all your friends and family. What are you doing right now? So I tried to go find a job for the first time in you know many, many years. And I got a gig selling restaurant, uh, sorry, wine and liquor accessories, mostly the liquor stores all over the country. So if you know like Specs in Texas, yeah. that's a big account of ours. It's not right. my account, unfortunately. Right, right, right. I get it though. But I'm opening up yeah. shop rights and stuff like that around here and I'm calling people all over the country and it's actually starting to hook up. But sales is... You know, building a book of business, it takes a few years to really, really get it. And I'm committed to do it and, and to doing it. And I'm there so far, uh, knock wood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. And and um, wow, that's that's crazy. That takes a lot of uh, sort of management. And I don't want to call it the, the used car salesman, but, you know, you have like a thing and you're trying to call someone. Hey, I have this thing. Would you like to buy this thing? How many would exactly. you like? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that takes thankfully, thankfully, the stuff we sell, you can like double or triple your money on it, right. which is unlike the liquor business. Like in liquor, when they're buying liquor, they're making pennies on the dollar, but they're doing volume. With us, you cannot do the volume, but you're going to make double what you paid for the stuff at least, you know, right. and which is kind of cool for those guys that have a customer base that wants to buy corkscrews and decanters and aerators and gift bags and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, that's great. Yeah. Uh, I, cool, that's so, so we, so we have stayed in touch for many, many years and, and you come up all the time and even more in the past couple of years since, since I started writing songs with Dan and we, Dan Lorenzo, uh, we have that, 
weird like you replaced me in watchtower and i replaced you in hades but it's not really that but in my head it's kind of like well it took me 30 years but i finally joined your band you joined my <laughs> band i joined your band kind of weird uh, speaking of cassius king and then um uh, this is very unfortunate um and i'll i'll explain a little bit because i'm kind of hanging myself here that i didn't you were at the uh the Wellmont show in Montclair, and I did not get to come out and give you a hug. And I, I get it, bro. I totally get it. I I was having these. No, Dave will be interested in this. I don't think. I think this is one thing that I had left. I've left out in the story of my my year that I had last year. Is is out on the Armored Saint thing. I. It, it it was more than one, but I know that it was at the at the Wellmont in Montclair. Uh, I was having these panic attacks, and they started uh, right before I went on stage. Like I started feeling lightheaded, and I had, you know everyone's back there doing the Rocky, da -da -da, and I'm like, I better sit down. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was one of those. And then I, I gathered, you know, I just did some deep breathing, of course, and you know, you you know, you're a singer, you 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 figure it out, and then you pace yourself and. So, but I, it was afterwards and I was just like, oh, I better really, I better just sit right here for like as long as possible and, you know, eat some, drink some, you know, rejuvenate. And I was mad at myself because I couldn't run out and kiss you on the cheek. Bro, I appreciate that. And the voicemail you left me was priceless and I super appreciate it. But let me tell you something, dude, not to get back to my old job. But my last meeting with my ex-boss, who, of course, I had met through Dan Lorenzo. Thanks for that, dude. <laughs> By the way, uh, was really bad. And I had a panic attack, one of the first in my life. And it was terrifying. Like, I went out to my car. I was shaking and crying. I was a complete disaster. So I get it. And you didn't even need to make an apology about that whole thing anyway, because you're singing on tour and I know what that takes out of you and everybody wants a piece of you and you're a good dude. So that, that voicemail meant the world to me, but I totally get it, unfortunately. And I'm glad you're not suffering with that right now. Right. Well, I couldn't power through it enough to, to do what the heart wanted. And that was to bro down with you for a minute. It's all good. And you sang your fucking ass off that night and it was awesome. Thanks. I was, that was one of the greatest moments of that run with Saint was, was that Wellmont show. That was pretty, that was pretty on point. I would, as on point as I could do, I could make it. That was a good night. And I'm really happy that you were there. So for those that don't know, let's, let's go sort of like, uh, let's start with what's happening right now. And then we'll, We'll sort of, sort of build your our past, and we'll talk about you joining Watchtower, and we'll we'll mention a bunch of other things that you've done as a as a great vocalist yourself. Um, Jersey Metal, tell us all about it. Give us a whole hard spiel about it because I can't wait to read it and check it out. I feel like I'm an honorary member of the Jersey Metal scene because of our connections, right? Tell us what's going on with that and how did you get started and tell us about for all about Frank White. So a little bit about, oh, I'm going to say maybe almost three years ago, I've known Frank White, the photographer for an author for many, many years. 
Uh, he did the first posed photo shoot of my band Prophecy way before I was in Hades. Like we're going back to the early eight, eh, mid eighties, mid eighties. <laughs> and Frank White had a Dio book out. I looked it over and I was like, dude, you know, there's a few things I want to tweak on here because this, you know, typo stuff and I'm an editing like disaster. Like I, I'm, I can't like not read a menu and proofread it. You know, like I'm that guy. So I fixed his Dio book and that kind of led to him inviting me to do something with him, an, an idea that he had for years, but never acted on. And that was this Jersey metal concept. So he's like, I want to do a book called Jersey metal. And it's all about everything related to heavy metal in New Jersey. So it's international bands that played Jersey, but it's also the very obscure bands that were Jersey bands in the seventies and stuff, which is kind of before my time. Frank's about four years older than me. So he's like, I got this idea. We started working on it loosely. I'm like, I can do this because I do the layout and I do the editing and the, you know, all of that stuff. And then Frank works with me on how big photos should be and where the story should lie. And it's all got to be month by month, year by year. So it was a pretty arduous thing to do. And it took two and a half years to do. But he invited me to do this thing and be a part of it. I came up with the subtitle, which is A History of the Garden State's Metal Scene From. And this will be three books. So the first book we have out now, which is doing well, thank God, is 69 to 86. And then 87 to 04 is the next book, which we're working on now. And that's 87 is when you and I started doing stuff like resisting success came out in 87 you yeah. know what i mean yeah you were sending me demos like the, the, all the whole tape trading phenomena is a big part of the book and that's how i got to know you you know yeah. what i mean like we were yeah. trading demos with each other you were opening for bands that i was opening for up here you and watchtower me and hades armored saint i mean you freaking name it metal church flotsam and jetsam all of those guys. Yeah. And we would trade our, our old school letters in the mail about yeah. that stuff. And that's kind of the, the genesis of it all. What, so um, I understand that you have a, a background in journalism and, and Frank, I guess, is, is a photographer. Um, so when you're putting this together, what did, uh, did you discover anything about the scene that you didn't know when you went in to uh, start putting this thing together? That's a killer question. And yes, totally tons, especially the earlier years where I couldn't get into clubs yet. The bands that were out there like Harlow and Gabriel and even White Tiger, like I knew White Tiger because the guitar player did all the nonfiction artwork for our CDs, but I didn't know White Tiger back then. And they were a massively huge band. Yeah. What in the wouldn't uh i'm not gonna get his name right. I, I've actually met the guy, uh St. John. Mark St. John. He wasn't in White Tiger, oh, but he was a part of that scene. And Mark St. John's in the book because he was in Kiss for a brief moment. Yeah. And he's backstage with T.T. Quick in one of the photos. Right. So he, he, he was, was in White Tiger he at was, one point. Yeah, I think he was in White Tiger for a minute. Yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Mark St. John. Yeah. yeah. You're schooling yeah. me. You're schooling me. Wow. <laughs> Well, call us if you need help on volume two. No, I actually have to redo <laughs> volume one so I can fix volume one now, actually, with that. Brooks and John was in White Tiger? I think so, yeah. I think that's a little... Playing bass? I don't know. I think he was playing guitar, but I'm not sure. This, this, book, had one guitar this, player. this book right here might might have that information in it. 
find that shit, dude. <laughs> well, continue. Tell us, you yeah, know, what, yeah, what did you learn? What did you learn about the scene that you weren't aware of? You were talking about some of the stuff took place before you were old enough to get into clubs. So you're being educated in that regard. But what were some of the you know highlights of stuff that you didn't know about? So I'll give you one little insight. I went to lunch with Danny Muro from White Tiger and we were talking about oh, the old days. And I said, Danny, just give me a really cool story from back in the day now those guys were discovered in new orleans they were a new orleans band originally and they were brought up here to capitalize on the jersey cover band scene which was off the charts back then i mean drinking age was 18 you'd have thousands of people at a show instead of maybe a few dozen or a few hundred and he goes we played the fountain casino which was a huge venue in south jersey that was mostly for like events and weddings and stuff it held like five thousand people it was massive And they did a a show on a Monday night and had WPLJ, which was the local radio station in New York. It was a big rock station back then. They would do PLJ nights. So they're like, Bill Ludicky was the manager of the band who had discovered them in New Orleans, moved them up here. And he's like, guys, what do you think you could do in terms of draw on a Monday night? A Monday night. (laughs) Yeah, that's rough. Maybe two or 300 people. Like, I don't really, you know, I don't know. So he's like, all right, well, the place holds 5,000. So even two or 300 looks like a weak night, <laughs> you know, like you need to have a lot more people, but whatever, they're going to pay you. I forget what the number was. It's in the book. It's like 1,500 bucks. And then plus, plus on any other tickets that were sold. So Bill Ludicky shows up that night and Danny told me the story over lunch and I, I just recorded it and then transposed it. He's, he's like, Ludicky is in the backstage with us going, it's looking okay out there. You guys looking all right. You know, how are you feeling? They're like, we're good, we're good. We don't want to leave the backstage area, though, because we're afraid we come out and there's nobody there. It's going to suck. And it's the first gig for Eric, their drummer, who was also a New Orleans guy who had just moved up here to join the band, and he's super nervous, and he's he has these little Southern Comfort-like snifters, and he's just sipping it and pacing back and forth backstage. And Ludicky comes up hangs out with them he goes i'm gonna go outside he goes i i got a clicker out front i'm gonna find out how many people are here he goes out front and they keep raising the volume in the front of house because there's more and more people coming in and they're trying to adapt to the the suction of the sound right so he comes back and he sits down ludicky and he's got this look on his face like a shit-eating grin and the band's like what's going on what's going on how many people are out there he's like you really want to know he goes yeah he goes 4,892. That number's probably wrong, but it was very close. I'm sorry. Back up. This gig was what and when and who was on the bill? Fountain Casino, White Tigers headlining. I didn't even know if there was an opener, to be honest with you. And so there's almost 5,000 people there. They've clearly made a ton of money on top of their guarantee. And the drummer loses his mind. He's just like, Eric's like, I can't go out there and do this. Oh, it's my first gig. You know, there's 5,000 people out there. <laughs> so they're like, Eric, calm down, calm down, calm down. And and Danny tells the whole story in the book where basically he gets behind the drum thing, the drum throne, and it's so vast. The stage is so big. And they can't hear each other because the monitors aren't really well positioned. And they didn't expect 5,000 people to be there. No. But he's like, I can't start. I can't start. I can't do it. And Danny Muro, who I love to death, walks up to him and goes, Hey, just count off the first song, kid. You're good. And they went into like Sin City or something. And the rest <laughs> of the thing was history. I mean, they just crushed it. 
Wow. wow. Well, wow. I have some I have some information. I just texted you if you have your phone. Uh I have to do a shout out for uh and to our to our buddy Sean Weingardner who uh is the keeper of the book and has uh gifted me one of these. These are probably going for about 50 bucks now. They're out of print. I believe this to be a second issue. It's called Headbangers, the worldwide mega book of heavy metal bands. The foreword is by Ted Nugent. We've talked about this book many times on the show, but it's been a little while since it's come up as a reference book. Okay. Now, on page uh, 396, by the way, this was put together um, by Mark Hale uh, pre-internet. So this was letters and phone calls, and 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 he just kicked it in the ass. Uh, he A lot oh, of work. I'm not cut you off. This is a totally different band. This oh, white really? Band. Totally really? different band. Well, then, thank God. <laughs> I thought oh. I felt like a little idiot. How do totally you know the white tiger? You, how can you tell? Well, because L.A. California, no. Oh, it says L.A. California. David Donato, that was not the singer of White Tiger. Oh, okay, all right. Michael Norton, bass, no. Okay. Black Fox, no. It was a totally different. Well, it band. gave it gave me good reason to bring up this book. So your your White Tiger is not in here, so you're safe. <laughs> sorry well, my bad my bad but no, that, to be we, clear, we all learned something there's yeah, two so, tigers out so, there so to be clear mark st john was what was from the the area or no i don't know but he's okay. in a picture with ct quick oh okay well that's that's, when he was right. in quick when he was in kiss right okay wow. okay right. um so so you guys i mean how did you start? How did you how did you start your first draft? It was like overwhelming to be honest with you. Um we have so much content and you know Frank kind of dumped it all on me and I I'm doing the layout so we, we want to make it month by month year by year. So we started uh he had a friend who had a whole bunch of aquarium magazines which was like a local magazine that started out around the time Rolling Stone started out, but just stayed kind of local for its whole run. Yeah. And he's like, I'm going to take pictures of the ads that have to do with heavy metal through the years. My friend has a big archive. I'm like, yeah, but your friend doesn't own that stuff. And I think Frank paid him money for this. <laughs> no, wow. I used to work at the Aquarian. So I went to them and I said, can we get access to the archives and do a timeline? This way we know this band played, you know, this club on this date and whatever and yeah. follow through. So they were like, absolutely have at it. We went in there for many days. I mean, Frank was in there probably eight hours one one of those days, like ridiculous amount of time. And we got a lot of really great content to kind of create an architecture for the entire book. But at the time that the book was 69 to now. And at a certain point I looked at Frank and I'm like, dude, there's no way this is all fitting in one book. It's gonna be like a 1500 page book. It's got to be sequenced and broken down. So it was going to be two books. Then we realized it had to be three books because I counted how many pages were to each year. And it was just too much. And the next book is really the book. I mean, that's 87 to 04. Right. So yeah. that's got way more content than the first book. But the first book was designed to kind of show where this metal scene that you and I, Jason, grew up in in that era you know what i mean yeah. it didn't just come from nowhere 
So the first book is really those early cover bands that were a lot of them trying to be like the New York Dolls, you know, dressing up like women. And it was a whole so like, the, shark so kind the scene, of thing. So the scene is is ultimately like, I mean, I, I forget the year that Twisted Sister started, but it's from that scene, isn't it? You're talking. Well, so, yeah. J.J. Yeah. Fetch writes our preface in the book. He wrote the preface and he's like, I joined a band in New Jersey called Silver Star. We started jamming. And then I said, hey, man, we got to change the name to something cooler. And he came up with the name Twisted Sister. Wow. And it was all Jersey guys in North Jersey, way before D. Snyder. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. this is 78, I'm going to okay. say. Like, and was, wasn't, Jay, wasn't he the singer? No, there was a singer guy. Oh, okay. He was right. a guitar player. And all different dudes. In all the right. book, you'll see all the photos. Have I not sent you a book, Jay? Empty-handed. I, 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 I'm so sorry. You should have a no, book. No, 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 no. Uh, I, I would love to show that off. Uh, I would love to be able to do this, right? Text me your address. Text me, text me the address. I totally you, thought I did that. You got it. You got it. Yeah, send me that, and boom, you got it. Wait, the, the, so the idea of starting um, as early as, the, well, that makes sense, and creating this uh, timeline that's as chronological or is verbatim to how it kind of built and transpired, I feel like would be completely daunting. Uh, Overwhelming, bro. It really was. I didn't think we were going to get it done, to be honest with you. Yeah. you know yeah, i'm i'm a book nerd jason will tell you i i read uh, you know all every rock biography autobiography i can get my hands on things like what you're doing with the the jersey metal scene uh there's been a couple others yeah, i'm sure you're familiar with murder in the front row there's one that covers the texas the central south central texas metal scene uh it's called as viewed from the pit and so, and so there's sort of these coffee table picture, they're, they're heavy on photos and light on text, but the text sort of serves to summarize the photos. Um, and I love all that stuff. And I love you're, the fact that you're, you're in that book, by the way, Alan. Oh, cool. <laughs> I, love the, I love the fact that you guys did one on New Jersey, because I don't think that a lot of people, you know, when I think even when I knew I was going to talk to you today, I started racking my brain about New Jersey metal. And I come up with the obvious, you know, Twisted Sister, Overkill and TT Quick. And then I kind of I start to lose steam. I can't even think. So I, I would think this would educate a lot of people because it obviously was a pretty vital scene, but I don't think it's had a lot of attention until now. So send me your address too, Dave, <laughs> and I'll get you a copy. <laughs> you're you're going to be blown away because there was so much shit happening that created the ground the ground that all the other stuff was built on in the 80s, later 80s, you know? Yeah. So you said now that you're going to divide it into three volumes, and the first one uh, took quite a while. What, what were the lessons learned to sort of accelerate the second one, if possible? Well, the main lesson is that we were looking at initially a, a, a one book. So I've got a lot of the second book already laid out. Mm. And the third book is also largely laid out, not like set in stone, but I got the content in the pages in the right, you know, sequential order. So it'll be easier for us to get that together. However, a, a big thing that I definitely have to mention is when this first one came out, we released it, Frank and I, at a thing called Chiller. Chiller is like a convention for 
it's mostly horror. It's Halloween weekend, but it's at a Hilton here in New Jersey, very close to where I live, actually. And you get all kinds of actors and stuff out there, like having tables and selling autographs and photos and whatnot. So we bought a table. And we sold a bunch of books and shirts there for Jersey Metal. It was kind of like the initial release of it. And in doing so, um, if, I don't know if you guys know Weird New Jersey. That's like a, it's a TV show. It's also a bunch of books and a magazine. One of the guys who owns Weird New Jersey, which is all about like cultural phenomena and stuff and, and, and creepy, scary, witchy stuff, uh, owns the Aquarian. He's one of the three owners of the Aquarian. So... Getting back to what I was saying earlier about Frank wanted to go to his friend's house and take pictures of ads. I'm like, I used to work at the Aquarian for five years. Let me call them and get access to their archives and go in there and do this. So they gave us all this access. We got mad content that helped us timeline the book. We get it done. Book comes out. Mark Skirman, who's the weird New Jersey guy, is at a table of his own at Chiller. I go over to him. I give him a signed copy. The back page of the book is a big thank you to them and a photo that they gave us of the three owners. And we also bought four hundred dollars worth of stickers from them. Like it was a good synergy thing, mm -hmm. or so I thought. So uh -oh. Mark is like, Mark's like, I love this book. It's great, man. It's great. He brings it back to the office, and Mark apparently has no problem with it. But the other two owners sent Frank an email, not me. They didn't have the balls to freaking email me or see, even CC me. God forbid. And it's not from an attorney, but it's from them saying, "Hey." Too much of our stuff is in this book, so sell the ones that you have, and then you need to like not have our stuff in the future printings. So they really, from what I've come to understand after the fact, is they just want money. I know, right, Jay? They just want money, and if they asked us for that up front, we would have totally paid them something and be done with it, but they didn't. They acted like all cool, like open arms, handshake, it's all good, and that's how I roll, old school. Yeah. And then they were like, you got to not do this. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to reset the entire fucking book without any mention of them or any of their ads because we denied a lot of the bands their flyers and stuff that they had because we had all these ads. Yeah. And they were really good. But the good thing about it is they've just made the first edition totally limited. And it's not even quite a thousand books. But once they're gone, and we're probably 400 books into that. Oh, that's so great. Once they're, all, yeah, once they're all gone, bro. They're gone. You'll never be able to buy them again. And we're selling them like hotcakes as a result, which is great. And then I'm almost done. I'm on page 200 and 273. It's a 343-page book, I think. I'm on 273 for the reset, which includes a lot of other art and a lot of other stories, a lot of Alice Cooper stuff from the early 70s that wasn't in the first book. And I got to put all the flyers in for the bands and make a lot of the photos bigger. So it's a bit more photocentric. And I also dropped the point size down on the type because it's a little too big. And I think it's going to be a much better book ultimately. But it kind of sucks. You got to do it. But it is what it is. Wow. So, yeah. But I guess the, the end result is you ended up with a collector's item of sorts out of all of this. So that that's kind of cool, actually. I agree. Uh, so when you mentioned you mentioned Alice Cooper and I in some of my research, I was getting a, a mental picture that the book not only captures the organic local scene, but it also kind of captures what was going on in the scene with regard to just hard rock and heavy metal in general. So if a touring band came through, you took pictures of the crowd, or if that, if someone in that band showed up at a house party or whatever, you, so you're not just focused on the locals. It's, it's, it's heavy on local content, 
but you're also sort of bringing in some of the stuff that allows people to go, oh, yeah, I was there. Or if they don't live in New Jersey, they can say like I did. I was like, oh, I remember that tour. I saw it in a different city. But yeah, I remember that. So yep. you're kind of capturing the whole heavy metal culture beyond just the local scene. Is that right? Well, the reason for that is because it's also part autobiography of Frank and autobiography of me. Okay. So I don't start writing until like 150 pages into the book. I mean, I did all the layout and all the editing and stuff before that. However, it's not my story. It's Frank's. And Frank started at 12 years old. He stole his mother's camera, who she had taught him how to use. She was like a a catalog, like a Sears catalog photographer person. Oh, like wow. she did like commercial photography, mm -hmm. taught him how to use the 35 mil. And he snuck out. And this is one of the best stories in the book. At 12 years old, he jumps a bus in a snowstorm into the city. And in the 70s, this is 1975. In 75, where that bus leaves you off at of Port Authority is a scary place, man. There's hookers everywhere, drugs everywhere, passed out homeless people everywhere. It was a very, very bizarre scenario. Probably not unlike how it is now, to be honest with you. <laughs> but back then, it was really terrifying. And he goes there as a 12-year-old kid, buys a hot dog on the street and a soda, buys a $10 ticket, for Led Zeppelin at Madison Square Garden. And those photos are in the book. I think I sent you those pages. Yes, you did. And they're, they're going to be in our montage. I saw the old photos of Bon Scott, ACDC. I what? saw the, yep. the Zeppelin photos. Fucking amazing. But now that I know that he's 12 years old and like probably crawling between people's legs and stuff to cruise up to the, <laughs> to, to the what was probably no barricade. No, he no just, barricade. But he, he just, he just looked like somebody... Yeah, he looked like somebody's kid. Yeah. So, uh, like, yeah, let yeah. the kid go. Yeah. You know? yeah. Well, that, that's cool. So it does have that, that there and that's what brings in some of the national acts because you're telling your stories about being kids and going to these shows. And I love, I love the autobiographical twist. So it's not just a commentary on the scene. It's also got your personal anecdotes about going to gigs and, and becoming a rocker and a headbanger, basically. Totally. Totally. Love it. That's awesome. Yeah. So when you're digging through those photos, let's say Frank's photos, obviously the Zeppelin photos, that's that's a pretty big score. But what do you uh, what stood out as your favorite photo when you were compiling volume one? Oh, man, there's so many photos. Top three, maybe if, if you can't just pick one. I really like the bad company photo he shot, which is back in that same era, like late 70s. Uh, he got a really great shot of them, and I'm a, I'm a big Bad Company fan. Uh, what else, dude? I mean, I, as we get toward the end of the book, there's a killer shot of Metal Church here at a local place in Jersey called The Show Place, and that is a backstage shot where the band is just like, ah! and David I, Wayne is still alive, obviously, before he picked him. I don't know why this is making me more. Sorry, dude. I got to figure out a way to turn this off. That's right. It's quite angelic. <laughs> Is that, the, no, I'm sorry, sorry. Yeah, the Aquarian. Yeah. You know who <laughs> that is? Ads back. No, 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 no. It's Henry Vegian. Do you know who Henry, Henry Vegian is? No. Mm -mm. Do you remember a band called Revenant? No. No. So they were a local death metal band from Jersey. Henry is now a professor at North Carolina University or something. He's an English professor. He's a hardcore dude. Wow. And we were, we're looking for people to write the preface for the second book. So I ran into Dave Windorf's brother-in-law at a record shop in Red Bank that took on a bunch of the books on consignment. 
And he's like, I'm going to see Dave over the holidays. And we really want him to kind of write the preface for the second book because Monster Magnet is a big part of the second book. Oh, and yeah. the third. And he hasn't gotten back to us yet. So Henry reaches out. And I know Henry can write like, an, like a really amazing person. He's a freaking English professor. And he's like, can I write the preface to the next book? And I'm like, I really want him to do it. So Frank and I met about it this Thursday and we want him to do it unless Dave jumps in front of him, which he's totally cool. And then he'll write the afterward. What's so his, Henry, I'm, I'm sorry, Henry what, said, what's his name again? Henry Vegian. Um, does this ring a bell? Yeah, he's the first name in here, plays guitar. Revenant, New Jersey, U.S. band, Spring 86, Henry Vegian. Uh, guitar vocals, John McEntee guitar, John Pratcher bass, John Frigenti drums, others bass, Tim Scott, blah, 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 blah. Recording so, yeah. demo, demo Beyond the Winds of Sorrow. I love it already. I know. They're great. They're great, dude. <laughs> awesome. But anyway, they're they're in this book. So this is cross reference to to a lot of what what's gonna happen. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep this out. So so you have a, enough people that you're in contact with that are from back then who are successful or they're still playing rock music or they're, you know, where you and I, where they have, you know, they're successful, like the Monster Magnet guys are still able to, to tour and, and make records and probably do okay, especially in Europe. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, that's, that's fantastic that you are telling this uh story i mean this is kind of never going away this this idea of of telling a history of of something um you know that people are passionate about about art you know the history of of an art the history of you and frank the history of you know what happened from this point to this point and documenting this, uh, and wh why? What what made you want to? Any regrets? <laughs> what made you want to do this? Well, I mean, I, you know, the regret might have been like thinking we could do it in one book, because uh, that clearly became like impossible. You know what I mean? So if you there has to be, there has to be, uh, you know, gigantic passion to want to do this because <laughs> some people would just see the, you know, the, the wave, the, you know, the, the tsunami of hell you're going to put yourself through, um, in the, in the pushback. Uh, but obviously you guys are a perfect pair to make this happen for that area and raise the flag for it, for people to just learn and, and either have great memories of or just all of the above. I think that it's amazing um, that you would want to do it, but thank God for you and Frank. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. You said, uh, yeah. You said that uh, you started writing your stories around page 150, and we, we've heard a little bit about Frank's uh, you know, autobiographical tale of, of, of the Led Zeppelin concert. Before what we move the on, Frank White actually shot Dangerous Toys. I'm not surprised. Yeah, he, we, we did some. We did a couple of photo shoots with him when we when we rolled through Jersey the first few times. Not surprised. Yeah, nice. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I remember one time I was on the phone with you, and you and Frank were actually working on the book when we were. I had called you, or you called me, and it was kind of late, and maybe you guys had hit the wine, 
And uh, Frank doesn't take it all. Uh, me neither. But anyway, you got it was late. You guys were burning the midnight oil, and and we were talking about that. And Frank actually mentioned, "Yeah, I shot dangerous toys." And it made me look back, and I saw some photo shoots. Anyway, so the history of Frank White as a professional photographer. Before we move on to to your pages, I just want to give uh, props to Frank and say, and or ask rather, what is? I mean, was he like? His stuff was printed. What magazines and books was he printed in? Well, he talks about it all in the book, and when I finally send it to you, you'll see. Yeah. He got into the Harris Publications world. Wow. So he was able to do for Guitar World, like all kinds of stuff. They would hire him for all kinds of assignments. And actually, getting back to Henry Vegian, he'll probably put this in his preface or his afterward, whatever he ends up writing where he and his friends could, again, he's a little old, he's younger than me. So I'm four years younger than Frank. He might be five or six years younger than Frank. They would be, he's a big fisherman. So he goes, as a kid in New Jersey, there was a stream we would like to fish in. Imagine this, like, you gotta be into fishing. You're going to high school and you're gonna go fishing before you go to school. (laughs) So the entrance to the stream was at the end of Frank White Street. So they would go down there, him and his friends at like five or six in the morning, cut through the thing, and here would be Frank rolling in from a concert somewhere, unloading his camera gear and stuff, going into the house, and they're like, that Frank White guy, man, he's so mysterious, he's so cool. Like, where was he tonight? What did he do tonight? Who did he go film tonight? Like, they were just big fans of him, and then they went on to becoming bands that he shot. (laughs) Wow. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, so you... you, you, uh, So... Going back to, uh, so Frank is telling his stories and we've heard one of them being that being the, the sneaking into the Led Zeppelin show. So when you get to your part where you're writing and you're sharing some of your autobiographical content in volume one, which story of yours was the most memorable or the most fun to, to put, to put on the page? Well, so for, to, to get back to one of your earlier questions, putting this together, like, I didn't really know how it was going to unfold. And then I kind of followed Frank's lead because he comes in as a young, young kid selling like seeds for flowers and, and vegetables to his neighbors to raise money to buy albums. You know, like yeah. it, was, wow. it was his childhood experience. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to do my childhood thing, but I'm not going to go from when I was before I was into music because there's just not enough pages. And I don't feel like a need to waste pages is on my early childhood. So I did it from the time I started thinking about singing in a band and that was high school. So one of my favorite stories is <laughs> jamming with a band that was my very first band I was in. My friend, Sam Helsel, we called him Sandy back then. He uh, had a band he was a really good drummer. He's a multi-instrumentalist. He plays bass really well, guitar really well. And he invited me to join his band to be the singer. And we were doing some songs. I mean, I'm not a singer yet, right? Like I haven't even taken any lessons. I'm just at a rehearsal trying to act like I know what I'm doing, but I'm probably a junior in high school. You know what I mean? And they're like, the guitar player looks at me and he goes, hey, uh, do you know what you're doing? I'm like, uh, <laughs> I guess kind of. I'm like, you know, I'm, um, I'm just doing this for the first time. Like I, I know it enough. He goes, no, no, no. Do you know what you're doing by Rush? Oh, (laughs) and that was my response, Jay. It was totally my response, Jason. I was like, oh, yeah, I don't totally know that one yet, but I'll learn it. And I learned it and we ended up playing it. But that was one of those moments where like my, 
and my blood pressure is coming up and I'm like, oh my God, I suck. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. And the guy's not even asking me that question. (laughs) Where he left off, he left off some vital information. Do you know what you're doing by rush? Right. I know. I know. I think um, he probably deliberately did that, but it was oh, a beautiful yeah. moment. Yeah, perfect. So, so tell us, uh, for those listening, um, tell us physically, what does this book look like? In ter- is it is it full color glossy? Is it is it photo heavy and, and light on text? Is it e- equal balance of both? Describe so, it physically. So the first version of it is a little not as photo heavy as the second version will be, which will be the final version. There's too many ads in the first version. Honestly, when I look back on it, it's it's actually a good thing the Aquarian did that to us because I put too many ads in that are too small to really absorb the right way from the same clubs like the Union Jack. There's way too many Union Jack ads in the first book, but the bands that we're talking about are in those ads. So we timelined it that way, but from a layout perspective and a an appreciation of of what you're getting, I think I kind of messed up with that. It's it's not that great. So the final one will be a lot more photo heavy, tons of text. It's an eight and a half by 11 book. It's really a coffee table book. I mean, the thing is girthy and heavy. When you get it, it's gonna hold some weight in your hands. And most people, when I hand it to them are like, oh my God, but they cost us almost $50 each to print because they are full color, full gloss. We didn't want to chintz out and make it like a, you know, paper book with some photos in it. Every page is high quality, high gloss, full color. So that costs. So we charge $75 for the book and we've been selling crazy amounts of books because it's worth it. You know, it's two and a half years of ultimate dedication and sacrifice. (laughs) And and we finally got it out. So if you really are into it, I mean, I've had people be like, yeah, I want to buy your book. And I'm like, are you really into that stuff? Because it's $75. Like yeah. you got to really want to read this. Like don't do it. Cause you're my friend. You got to, I want you to read the thing. Cause there's so much cool shit in it, you know? Yeah. Right. Right. It sounds That's amazing. Awesome. I can't wait to thumb through it, man. I just yeah. can't wait to hold it in my hands. It's going out to both of you yo-yos tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm so sorry to be grand. But, uh, but I, you so, know, I, go ahead, Dave. Uh, Jason brought up a point earlier that I wanted to kind of expand on. I, I'm a I'm a writer myself. My background is all journalism and everything. And and I've had so many people, you know, ask me, when are you going to write the book? When are you going to write your book? You know, about all your music adventures and all this stuff. And I can't I can never get past the overwhelming, daunting, just, you know, my head wants to explode when I think about taking on that type of a project so i i applaud anyone that sets their mind to doing a book and actually gets it done so congratulations to you and frank and uh and thanks thanks for uh making it available to people because i do think it sounds like a worthwhile document of a really cool scene thanks bro and i will tell you this you should definitely write that book and four words push through the pain because it is painful but it's so worth it yeah. I mean, those two years, they burn by so fast, bro. Wow. And I could have sat there and been like, ah, it's too much. But I didn't. I yeah. sat down with Frank every week. And dude, Frank and I have had like knockdown, drag out fights over this book in this tiny little, this is a 25 foot square space closet I'm in right now. Wow. This is where we do our work. So yeah. it's a tight space. And there have been moments where I want to kill the guy. But it's all about the big picture. You know what I mean? And it does take time. So you can do it. Do it. Do it, Dave. Yeah. 
Well, thanks, man. I, you know, I, I've taken baby steps. I started a website, we do this podcast and it's like a little bits at a time. And, and I try to, I tried to feed that Jones in little bite-sized bits. And so this gives me sort of that release and that satisfaction. But I hear what you're saying, the idea, because I'm not a musician, so I'll never be able to put my album on the wall or on the stereo. I don't have, you know, a book. You know, a book would be my album. You know what I mean? And yeah. so that's kind of a motivation for me as well. So well, maybe I'll pump, follow your lead. To pump to pump Dave up to Alan a little bit. Dave is, uh, has interviewed, you know, David Bowie and David Lee Roth and Rob Halford and Ozzy Osbourne and Lemmy. And, you know, he's, he's interviewed the rock stars that we all grew up like worshiping. Yep. So he has them on, on tape, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and, and he did articles for that have been, you know, he's, he's, he's a public, He's a, you know, he's a, he's, he's a real writer, you know? So I feel like, I feel like a book of you just talking about, you know, pressing play on the answering machine, Dave, yeah. hearing like, this is David Bowie. I'm calling for David Glasner, you know, yeah. whatever. And you just going, holy mother of, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and then having to call him back and get this whole, I think just like play by play of all of that in a book would be really fun for people who just love rock and roll. So oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I'm sure there's plenty of content. It's just like, like Alan saying, you just got to make the decision and push through the pain and do it, man. And I, I haven't brought myself to that point yet, but uh, maybe, maybe Alan's book will inspire me. It definitely will. <laughs> and I'll tell you, it's a matter of whittling shit down because I'm looking at the second book now and although I'm almost done redoing the first book, and that's definitely my focus, the second book is the book, because that's the years, you know, like all the stuff happened. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, oh my God, I got a million photos of this band. But now I know from the first book that we're not using all those photos. Right. Frank and I will look through them and figure out what are the best ones to use. And we'll cherry pick the best stuff of everything and eliminate all the rest and just make it look as good as you can. But that's a process that my head was not wrapped around when we started this first book. I was sort of like, oh my God, I gotta leave those pages out. And by the way, also my software was running out of time because I'm using InDesign in an early version of it and not wanting to subscribe, but now they make you subscribe for everything. So I'm like, I'm finishing the first book with the software that's on my fucking laptop. And then I'll buy the subscription, which I've now bought a new kick-ass laptop that I'm on right now and the subscription. And so the software flows much more fluidly. Of course, they fuck you for all the fonts and stuff. But when you buy the subscription, you can get all that. I'm getting too deep into the weeds on this. But that's the fine. bottom line is it was sort of like more overwhelming because i'm like i gotta finish it in time for this software to be not completely usable which just happened like now january 1st it happened <laughs> right right yeah so there's some of that daunting pain that i'm talking about and that's not even the that's not even the creative part that's the technical crap right, that's right. crazy yeah that's right yeah so <laughs> I, it would be so I, worth it. I want to talk a little bit more about your your singing career Yes, let's. You mentioned you mentioned your first band prophecy. You mentioned your your first day of singing and the guitar player going, "Hey, do you know what you're doing?" You know that kind of shit. That's great. <laughs> um, you you know, I feel like uh, 
there there's more to it you know i feel like uh, your first hades record came out in 86 87 87 and uh how did you how did you guys uh get what label was that on torrid records Torrid, through, that's right combat i think yeah yeah and uh god those that sounds so familiar do you remember any of your label mates wasn't wasn't oh my first, god yeah tension exodus was the label exodus, mate. right exodus bonded by blood was on torrid wasn't it yes yeah. yes we were we were like we're like exodus is on this label we're signed we're gonna be huge <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. so so well how how long uh you know did you do a tour or do you, were you just kind Europe. of like up and down? Europe. Yeah. We did a lot of local shows and a lot of East Coast runs and stuff. Yeah. Not much beyond that. Um, I shouldn't say that. I think we did Detroit, Chicago, stuff like that. But nothing crazy, no big tour. Yeah. Until 88. 88, we did uh, Europe. And it was a very low-budget tour. A Mucky Pup who was a band from New Jersey right. that Dan Lorenzo actually helped get their deal. They went out and they immediately became way bigger than us. <laughs> like their whole thing was a very different kind of music, like kind of funny punk pop, but not not punk pop, but punk metal, whatever. And I, I remember they, them vaguely. So they stormed it, bro. They stormed yeah. it, and they had a great yeah. tour, and that led us to our tour. And our tour was not so great. I mean. Dan and I were having issues right before I left for that tour. I had this guy, Jason McMaster, reach out to me and say, you have to replace me in Watchtower. And I'm like, no, dude, I'm going to Europe. We're going to tour and I can't do it. But on tour, Dan and I really like locked horns in a bad way. And I knew I had this potential opportunity to audition. So in Belgium, at one of the end of the gigs, one of the last few gigs, I was like, I sent a postcard to Doug. And I was like, dude, if that opportunity is still there, I want to audition when I get back home. And I basically quit Hades on that tour toward the end of that tour because it just was, I get paying your dues. I get the salad days, man. I get it all day long. But there's sometimes just a limit that you shouldn't accept because then you're just putting yourself under somebody's thumb and it ain't going to be a good life for you. So I took the chance. I quit Hades. Flew down to Texas, auditioned, and got the Watchtower gig. And thank you for that, brah. <laughs> thank yeah. you in a big way for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, the you know the the show must go on, and and as far as like, uh, I hate the term worthy replacements. You were more than that because you were a friend. I called you a friend, even though we weren't close. We we were just a pin. The whole tape trading pen pal thing. Yep. It's how I knew anybody. It wasn't like I was driving to Jersey, knocking on your house for dinner. Hey, don't guess, guess surprise. You know, same, it was same. the whole tape trading and the whole um, respect and like, whoa, these guys are awesome. And they wrote me and I love that. And whoa, you know, make, make your heartbeats faster. You, you know, reason for living when you're a teenager, you know, about yep. you're not even, you're barely 20 years old kind of a thing, you know. Or you're yep. 21, 20, whatever it is. Yep. You're a young person. So this is this is kind of vital and important. And, you know, things were happening to me that were like I had to make decisions, too, that were going to change my immediate life. And I, if I was going to leave one situation, I didn't want to just go 
you know, just jump ship and not have uh, another plan for, because I cared, you know, and that was, that was a call that I made to you. And I'm, I'm glad that that worked out. Can we talk about that a little bit? Of course. So you're, you don't come to Texas. You, the next thing you're, you know, you're getting packages of cassette tape demos from me, or unless you didn't have them already of stuff that was going to be on the second record control and resistance that yeah. had me singing as well as uh, demoed out versions of dangerous toy. I think had Mike Solis on it. Uh, yep. You were listening to all of these, uh, you know, they were biding time until they could get to Berlin and, and probably meet you for the first time. No, it wasn't oh. like that. Exactly. Tell me what, the what story. it was. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's so cool. I love that you're asking this. <laughs> the, uh, the the impetus was I sent that postcard off and Doug was like, yeah, when you get back into the States, call us and, you know, we'll get together. Doug so being the, Doug Keezer. Keezer, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, got you. And, uh, and so I was like, all right, this is kind of cool. But Jason was the driving force behind Watchtower. You know what I mean? So I didn't really, I mean, I kind of knew that, but I didn't know the dynamic especially joining as a band member or potential band member. So I flew down right after I got back from Germany. We jammed on Cult of Personality, a bunch of Watchtower songs, okay. some other covers. I forget what they were, but it was it was cool. It was in like the house that Rick and Doug shared together. Yeah, so, uh, uh, Rock Ridge or R River, River. yeah, Rock Ridge, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So it was in the like, living room of a house, and I'm like, this is yeah. different. But it was cool, and I guess they liked me enough to be like, okay, let's do it. And then, and by the way, getting back to what you were saying, you sent me Energetic in the early days. Yeah. And just like Resisting Success, my first album, the production just was thin and weak, and it bummed me out and I could kind of find the cool riffs like social fears there were some songs that they had really monumental riffs obviously the Eldritch and Meltdown for sure but the sound quality wasn't there and it was it's a bit of a turnoff just like my first Hades album is like some yeah. people love it but it's just thin and kind of weak in, in production then you sent me the Instruments of Random Murder demo and that is what completely hooked me into Watchtower. I was like, oh my God, I get it now. You know what I mean? Maybe without Energetic, I wouldn't have gotten it, but I got it with that demo. Like that was, I listened to that shit all the time. I can still remember places on the Garden State Parkway where I pushed that cassette into my deck and the car and was like, oh my God, I love these songs. Like, yeah. it was for, for a reason. Like, yeah. there were so many great songs on there. Yeah, I still, love, I, I still love those songs so, so very much. There's a lot to love. Yeah, yeah. Well, so when, one, one song has 25 riffs in it. So, know, you know, you're know. not going to get bored. I know, not yeah. at all. When, yeah. when you come down to audition for, for Watchtower, um, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, by the time you're in Hades, I assume you're you're gaining some experience and you're and you're and you're establishing your technique and all that sort of thing. But when you come down to Texas, knowing that you're trying out for Jason's job, and now Watchtower at this point is is starting to cause a little bit of a buzz, and they're getting some respect, and you know their peers are, you know they're they're a band to be reckoned with, and so you come in. 
are you intimidated by that at all? Or did you, were you confident enough in your own approach and style that you're like, I'm just going to take this and be me. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, oh, well. It's kind of a mix of both, honestly, Dave, because they already had a record deal. So there was pressure. Like, you got to fucking make this record soon. Yeah. And to understand Watchtower as a singer, and like you said earlier, I don't play any instruments either. So I just kind of get in front of a mic and do whatever I do. You know, yeah, I don't, yeah. I have ear training and I've taken vocal lessons and stuff and I get thirds and fourths and fifths and all that, but I'm not a player, you know? So to play with these guys who are all like high level players, mm. wicked intimidating, like really intimidating. Like I can't even tell you way more intimidating than Jim with the Hades guys. Like I came in, I'm like, all right, these guys are like kind of, super geniuses you know and i got to adapt to this and flow with them but the only way i can do it is to i mean i remember jason you telling stories about billy white stepping on your foot like start singing here stop singing there start singing here stop singing there yeah i didn't have any of that i just had to like ingrain the riffs in my head and memorize them yeah and then think and then think to myself what should the voice do over this but that shit didn't happen until after Control and Resistance, because Control and Resistance was mostly written. I just had to kind of cop Jason stuff, and I was lucky enough to add harmonies on to like Fall of Reason and a few songs that I just I think I did I did a different melodic approach to them vocally, but the template was there already. I didn't have to create it from scratch. Yeah, uh, is is it true that? Uh, by the way, just to put a kind of a rough date on it was this summer of 88 or later i think it is summer of 88 okay that's what i thought yeah so summer of 88 this was happening fast because the dangerous toys thing was happening fast and it was like remember? it was like overnight that i was going oh my god alan where are you you, you got to do this and well i can't do it i'm going on tour and a month later i get a call from you guess what i called doug and we're blah 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 and i'm like what yeah <laughs> it was kind of i was like it was like so fast and then i i was next thing i know i was in the studio making the first toys record and you guys were in berlin yeah like yep. pretty much around the same time which would have been oh, late yeah. late 88 Yes, yes. So they had the deal with Noise International Records already when you're jumping in. Yes. You jam with them one time in Austin. Do you go back to Jersey to pack a bag to go to Berlin kind of a thing? What? I went back to Jersey to borrow my friend Dave Reiser's uh, like eight-track mixing board, oh. plugged it into my kitchen. My dad, my mom had just died like a year or so earlier. So it's just my dad and I, and he's opposite schedule to me so i have the house to myself all day but unfortunately i plug the freaking mixing board in and do all my singing in the kitchen so it's on the same freaking circuit as the the refrigerator so when the refrigerator kicks on you hear these pops in all my recordings there's all these pops i have demos of control and resistance that are just from my kitchen me trying to sing to these songs so i demoed those out i mean dude i mean i spent i don't know how many hours and days it was endless on those things to try to get it right because it's so technical as you know yeah. and it's got to be right like it's got to feel right the vocal has to land and have the cadence to work with those crazy you know musical things yeah without so, without sounding quantized right yeah, it, can't, it can't be robotic like the riffs are robotic you know they're know. they're bleepity blah it's r2d2 riffs 
you know, it sounds like those riffs sound, those riffs sound like an old modem starting up. And you're having to sing melody over that. Let me just tell the world, what the fuck? <laughs> it was not an easy task, bro. It was not an easy task. So, so you, you demo out all this stuff. When, when are you, when and what are you doing after that? After, I mean, are you sending those to, to, to Ron and Doug so they can? Yes. Okay. Yes. And I'm sending them, I think on cassettes, like this is before yeah. the internet. So I was sending them stuff. And I remember uh, in May Day in Kiev, my, <laughs> my demo of it is like, alert, 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 alert. Like I, I, had, I figured out how to make the, the delay work <laughs> to make it like that. And it just sounds ridiculous. Nice. And we made it much better on the album. Yeah. But I'll never yeah. forget that. Like when that comes on, if, if, that, if the demo ever comes up on my shuffle, I'm like, oh my God, here comes alert. <laughs> <You know? laughs> <laughs> let me back up just a bit how did you get the news that you got the watchtower gig oh good question Ooh, that is a good question i don't know the answer so i i went down there i jammed with them i came back to jersey and they were like uh you got it <laughs> and okay. we gotta go to germany and i'm like i was just in germany and they're like yeah we're going back to germany in like two weeks so my my father is like well what are you doing because he was in the process of moving to florida it was like a really tumultuous time for me, but I'm like, listen, man, I'm going to go to Germany. It was almost like the whole summer. And the only sad thing about that is we weren't there long enough to see the wall come down because it came down a month after we left. Yeah. And oh. that was like a monumental moment, but we got to experience Berlin before the wall came down, which was awesome. And we played a bunch of shows through Berlin and then even in uh, West Germany, we took a ride out there and, and did our first show shows like, for real shows and so um, you're over there you're over there let's talk about the plane ride because i have this this fantasy that sounds strange but i have this <laughs> let's call it an image i have this like <laughs> like almost like a video in my head like a documentary kind of thing with alan with his suitcase and he's got like a sony walkman because it's the 80s and yeah. you're, and you're getting with cassettes you've been saying cassette yeah. a lot today Sorry yep. about that. And you're getting on the plane, you know, let's just call it Pan Am, you know, and you're getting on <laughs> getting on the plane and you put on your, you're getting in the seat and you strap yourself in and you, you put the headphones on and click. And are you listening to these songs over and over and over? Are you like silently practicing in on the plane on the way over to Berlin? Tell me about it. All day long, all day long. And on the ride back, I remember listening a lot to Dire Straits for some reason. Wow. And Faith No More, like the early Faith No More stuff. I remember that being like, what the fuck are these guys? Like, this is so cool. Before wow. Mike Patton, you know what I mean? Like the yeah, early. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes. Incessant. We care a lot. Right. That's right. Probably That's right. A lot. Chuck Mosley. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Love that guy. I'm so bummed he didn't work out in Bad Brains. That would have been a great fit. But whatever. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so you're, so you're in Germany. Do you start recording the next day? What, what's the first, what's your process? Just, you know, without being long winded about it, what was the plan, right? When you guys all met the up? The plan was mainly to get all the drum and bass tracks down. So Rick was done really early. Yeah. Like he just had it together. He just yeah. made it happen. Oh yeah. 
but they had hired, you know, Noise Records, Carl Volterbach had hired this guy from England to produce us, Alan Lemming, and or Leeming. And he came over and just had this whole, like, he watched us rehearse and you just knew he didn't get it. You, you've been oh. in Watchtower, dude. You know when somebody's in front of you and they're just sort of like, oh, <laughs> yeah. well, it's a lot. It's a lot to take, man. I was gonna say. I mean, you gotta give the you know, it's in in the guy's defense. I mean, he probably hasn't heard anything like this before. And how? Never. And then he's like, "What am I supposed to do with this?" I agree. I agree. So, so is it true was. that you guys changed producers in the middle of the whole deal? Right? Because Alan, God bless him, his whole thing was when we hit a wall at rehearsal or the studio, wherever. Let's go across the street to the pub, have a couple pints and talk about it. And you know, the Watchtower guys don't really drink. Right. So I'm all about having a few pints, but not when I got to sing. Yeah. So I'm like, no, yeah. dude, my band is so not down that road. Let's get back in the fucking studio and finish this shit. And then we'll go have some drinks when I don't got to do any work. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. But he was just all about that. And I know ah, that's a very Brit thing. It's I all about, say, yeah. let's hit the pub, let's hit the pub. We'll figure it out over the pint, whatever. But these guys wanted to work and it was fucking intense work. So yeah. eventually it reached the wall where everybody had a, we had a fire Allen and those fucking watchtower guys, man, they wouldn't fucking step up and do it. I had to fire the guy. I'm the new guy in the band. <laughs> yeah. I share a name with the guy. So I'm like, Hey, Al. <laughs> like, <laughs> really sorry bro but you're just not working out we're gonna let you go and he was like heartbroken and very oh. emotional about it oh no like, dude i'm so sorry and all my guys they left me out there to fucking dry yeah. nobody was to make that freaking meeting happen wow. and i was like this is fucked up it's not even really my band like i yeah. just joined this band and i gotta fire this guy <laughs> so i fire him he sends us this giant letter he wrote a giant letter and left it for us when he left uh, very, very heartbreaking. You know, it was oh like, my God. I've never been fired before. I can't believe this is happening. I'm so humiliated. I'm so sorry I couldn't do it for you guys. I mean, he was very nice about it, but I felt really bad about it, to be honest with you. But wow. it was the right move. It was the it, right move, though. Did not know that. Yeah, but uh, obviously it was the right move. He's not gelling. He doesn't get the material. He doesn't know how, to, you know, he... Who knows? He maybe could have gotten great tones and just press record and let you guys do what you do, and it probably would have been okay. What did you do at that point? So I didn't really do anything. Carl Volterbach was like, I'm going to hire another producer who's outside of the metal realm. I'm a guy who did The Cure and Echo and the Bunnymen. Wow. A, the Cure is like one of my favorite, favorite bands ever. And their, so records, like, and their records sound amazing and have tones. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah. we're getting a guy who worked with The Cure. Like, I'm in. Like, let's yeah. do this. It'll be fucking great. And maybe he brings a very new perspective to the metal genre. Sure. Yeah. But this guy, his name was Ian something. And he didn't last that long either. Because he couldn't, he couldn't deal with anybody listening to the mixes while he was making the mixes. And you know, Ronnie. Ronnie's like, I want to be at the board yeah. when the mixes. Like, I can guide you on the tones. And... I know all the parts that were tracked and Ronnie is like kind of a super genius. Oh yeah. And he, really, he is the guy who should have been behind the board, but he wasn't a producer guy. And we're talking about Ron Jarzombek, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So this new guy presents a bunch of mixes and they're just so, 
not metal. They're really weak and thin. Mm. Like he like went for the instruments or the sounds and tones of the instruments that were not the relevant sounds and tones. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it just didn't sound good. And we're listening to it like we want to be blown away and have like instruments hit you in the face like, ah, you know, like up, up front, not ambient up front. It was totally ambient. So he ended up getting fired. I don't think I had to fire him. I think Carl was just like, you're not working out and you're out. So there was a producer guy, a mixing engineer dude, Thomas. Thomas's last name, but he was a hardcore German and he worked at that studio a lot, Sky Skylab. And he was like, or Skytrack. And he's like, I'm gonna come in, I'm gonna whip you guys into shape. We're gonna make this happen. And it was brutal, man. Like, you know, he came in. Um, at the end of it, we had to go play some shows. So Ronnie stayed back. And while we drove to West Germany, Ronnie flew into West Germany. Wow. Because was behind the board with this guy Thomas and they worked really well together I'll never the things I remember about Thomas was when I was tracking and I'm singing all this crazy ass high shit that you wrote <laughs> and I'm trying to nail it and Thomas would just stop the tape and be like again and I'd roll he'd roll the tape back and hit it again and I'd be like you know whatever crazy high note I'm trying to sing and he'd stop the tape and be like, again it was brutal bro he, he totally freaking brutalized me, but he got the best performances out of me. That's right. That's, that's the end game. Exactly. Yep. So when you, when you finally record Control and Resistance, what kind of touring did you do in support of that album? So initially, we just did some shows in Europe, uh, mostly Germany. And then we went back to the States. We played a lot around Texas. So we did like Houston, Dallas, Austin, SA. Um, I think that was mostly the circuit was those places. I remember After Dark in Houston, uh, the, the the back room in Austin, obviously. Um, there were a lot of really great shows there. And that kind of prepped us to what we were going to go do. I know Dan Lorenzo actually hooked us up with a bunch of shows in the Northeast. So we came up here and we played with the early version of nonfiction, clearly before I was in nonfiction. And those were really good shows too, because nobody had seen Watchtower before. And it was there were a lot of fans out there that were just like, I mean, you're, you're if you're a Watchtower fan, like you're an over the top fan. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah. And I also down. feel, and also feel like if you're a Watchtower fan, you know who Hades is and you probably are going to, if you hear the word, if you hear the name Alan Tecchio, you're probably going to go, wait a minute. I, I know that name. And then, and then obviously it, that, that's what I loved about. That's another reason why I was like, Alan needs to be in Watchtower. <laughs> so it was a so, great fan. Yeah, yeah. So so didn't you support the the shows you did in Germany? Did you come back to the States and then go back to Germany? Because didn't you tour with Coroner? That's what I was yeah, we did. That's really the main tour we did. Um in all the well, the one year I was in the band, really, because that's when Ronnie's fingers got all messed up and he couldn't play anymore. Mm -hmm. But the Watchtower tour with Coroner was a memory I will never ever forget. I, I'm still friendly with Tommy from what from Coroner. Yeah. And occasionally I'll reach out to Ron Royce, like, you know, we'll we'll just chit chat about some memories and stuff because it's so many years ago. Yeah. But those guys were great. Uh I had to fire somebody else on that tour though. We had my friend Dave Reiser from Rock Hard Studios had a buddy. Now, Dave was going to come with us to Europe, but he's a union electrician. So he's like, I can't leave for a month or two or whatever. Like, I got to stay here, but I got the great guy for you. His name's Charlie. I'm like, 
who is this guy? He goes, greatest sound engineer in front of house you've ever seen. But Charlie has this massive fucking pill addiction. <laughs> and oh, he's got all yeah. these like prescription pills that are with him. So like getting through customs and all these places, he's got all these bottles of pills with his names on them and they're legit. But it was sort of like, dude. So we're on the road and now the, the coroner guys, they like to smoke a little weed, which is great. But this guy, Charlie, was way too into smoking weed. So he's stoned all the time. And I'm like, bro, you got to be behind the board right now. Like, get our sounds, get us up to speed. Like, you want to party, party your ass off when we're done. Like, none of us are partying before we play. Just saying. And we're paying you to be here, bro. Yeah. So yeah. midway through the tour, he just became a freaking train wreck with the weed. And that, that's it's kind of like hypocritical for me to even say because I don't feel that badly about weed people, you know, like, yeah. but he, he, was, he was affecting his job. Sure. And we're paying him. So I'm like, dude, Charlie, you got to go. He goes, what do you mean? I'm like, I got you a ticket home, bro. You're getting the next plane out of Munich or wherever we were. Yeah. And you're gone. And then we had the coroner sound guy. We paid him money to like do the rest of our sound for the rest of the tour. But the coroner guys were great. I love them. Uh, quick little stupid story that will be in the next book. They have a song where <laughs> Ron sings like a newborn child. I forget the name of the song, but every night I would see him and I'd be like, dude, it sounds like you're saying a newborn cow. Can you sing that for me tonight? And every night, the rest of the tour, he would look for me in the crowd and be like, like a newborn cow. <laughs> it was so fucking great. Those guys were just so down to earth. They were awesome guys. <laughs> So you, by the time you joined Watchtower, there was already a buzz after Energetic Disassembly, and and the buzz was was reaching uh, some influential people. Let's say you know uh, Metallica is aware of Watchtower, uh, Slayer, Armored Saint. Some of these bands are are becoming aware of Watchtower and becoming friends with them. So a couple years later now. The, you're in the band. There's a new album out. Was there ever any offers to go on a tour as a as supporting any of those bands that were starting to rise at that point? No offers. Although we did get to sing background at the back room in Austin with Dark Angel because Gene was a huge fan of Watchtower. Yes. We did. Uh, oh my God! What song did we sing with them? Merciless Death. <laughs> and it was really, really cool, man. Well, I Chuck, Chuck Schuldiner and Gene Hoagland are probably the biggest Watchtower fans. True enough. True enough. So I, met you, Chuck's we, sister. I met Chuck's sister at a, it was a, the, the book release for Mosh Potatoes, I think, which was like a cookbook for heavy metal guys. Yeah, you, you got You're me in that. that. Yeah, you got yeah, me in that. that. You're in that. Mosh and I went to that release and Chuck's, Chuck's sister was there and I'm like, <laughs> Hey, I'm, out taking you. I'm a big fan of your brothers. You know, she goes, oh, my brother was a big fan of you. <laughs> and it was wow. very, very flattering, very humbling. Wow. When you got the Watchtower gig, did you move to Texas? I did. Okay. So were you living in Austin during your tenure with Watchtower? I was. Okay. It was only like a year and a bunch of those months were in Europe, but yes. So, okay. So there's the next question. What happened? Why did it, why did it end after Control and Resistance? So we were starting to work on new songs, which was a little bit of an arduous thing uh, in terms of, I had told those guys, like I wanted to kind of bring my singing into a more middle register than always high all the time. 
Sorry so about gorgeous. that. No, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> and initially they were like, yeah, no problem. But then when I started doing stuff, they're like, it's not high enough. Bring it up an octave or two. And I'm like, I told you guys, like, I want to bring it down and I'll, I'll add some high screams and stuff, but I don't want to be just constantly doing that. And I think it's more acceptable to the listener, which might be an excuse for me as a singer to not have to scream all the time, but to get it to be like, you know, make those highs stand out, yeah. not yeah. make the highs, the, the, the norm, make them the exceptional, like, whoa, man, that's awesome. And they weren't really having that. And then, unfortunately, Ronnie ran into issues with his fingers. So he had, I believe it's called hyperextension of his P joints. Mm -hmm. So whenever he went to finger the frets, his fingers would give out and he couldn't hold the strings down. So he had to get surgeries on, I think, three fingers. If I'm not, you might know better than me, Jay. Sounds familiar. But, so he had to get a bunch of surgeries and it took like three years or more to, for him to heal. Uh, in the meantime, of course, Ronnie being Ronnie, he would make demos just hitting with one finger all of the notes and splicing it together <laughs> to sound as insane as he normally sounds. And only a genius like that could even do something like that and think on that level. But it was not really feasible for us to rehearse. So you can do that in, when you're tracking on your, on your own in your home. But yeah. in a rehearsal environment, you got to play. And he couldn't yeah. play. So... They were honestly, the, the Watchtower guys were very honest with me. They were like, look, if you don't want to hang around, like, we don't know how long this is going to take for Ronnie to get better. And I'm like, dude, I moved my whole life down here. My dad now at this point, I moved to Florida. So I'm like to come back to Jersey, kind of an issue. But in that space of time, Dan Lorenzo had read an uh, interview I did where I talked highly about his nonfiction demo. And he then reached out to me and was like, oh, I heard what you wrote about my demo. And I was like, great. You know, we're losing Danny as a singer. Do you want to try out for nonfiction? So that led me to come back to Jersey to try out for nonfiction, which by the way, two of the guys in that band made it like a freaking like the worst audition ever. Like I had to really prove myself. And I'm like, dude, I can fucking do this. You know, like yeah. I can totally do my thing here. Of course you can. But they did not, they did not make it easy on me, bro. It was not like the Watchtower audition. It was like, well, you're not in the band yet, kind of thing. And I'm yeah, like, that sounds like sounds like a vulgar display of power, is all. Yeah, it kind of was, yeah, kind of yeah. was, but it ended up working out in the end. Yeah, and I saw you guys did a, did a little bit of touring because I saw you guys at a club on Fifth Street in downtown Austin. What year was that? Ninety? Oh my God, dude! Ninety one, ninety two. You were like one of the only guys in the audience for that thing. It had to be around that. Well, had to be. well, I, I, I could, I could count them on two hands. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly, bro. Exactly, Grace Segern might have been there. But I feel like it was like an added show to something you guys were already doing. What? How many shows did did you do on a nonfiction tour? Well, we went out with Overkill oh. and Sabotage in Europe, and that was a big tour. And then we came back to the States and we toured with just Overkill in the States. And I think we picked up some one-offs here and there, which probably was that Austin gig. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, we usually went out for six weeks, something like that. It wasn't anything crazy like you've done. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't an extensive month after month after month touring. Right. But that's pretty, I mean, even nowadays, six weeks is can be a lot. Yeah, but nowadays is way different. <laughs> oh, oh my God! Yeah, but but six weeks is pretty good, even even for back then. I mean, 
I don't have to ask the question, you know, were you living hand to mouth? I'm sure that it was going in totally. the gas tank and it was Taco Bell and McDonald's, you know. Totally, totally, yep. Yeah. So I say skinny. <laughs> at what point, uh, going back to, I, I would guess, your teenage years, um, you, you start dabbling with singing. At, at, and you said early on that, you you know, you were kind of just fumbling around. At what point did you feel that you found your voice and you were confident in your vocals? <laughs> That's a really good question. And I have the perfect answer for that. It was after all of those bands, Watchtower, Hades. Uh, it wasn't until I was able to put a band together myself and actually I shouldn't say that it wasn't until Jack Frost asked me to join seven witches or to participate on one of his solo records initially where I went in there and I'm like, I can write all the words and do whatever I want. And he's like, yeah. And it just freed me. And then when I started working with seven witches, I could do whatever I wanted. I could write all my words. I could sing as many harmonies, as many melodies, whatever I wanted. And then I put together a band after that called Autumn Hour. We only did one album. It was like 2009, if I'm not mistaken. And that record is where I think I really found my voice because I picked these guys to be in the band. So it wasn't me like joining a band or auditioning for a band. I wanted these guys to be guys that had really good musical chops, really good individual ideas, didn't need to be guided. And... I could have a beer with and just hang out and talk with and want to hang out with. I needed those criteria to be met. And I found it in my bass player, uh, Clint Arendt, who I'm still in a band called Level Fields with. My guitar player was Justin German, who had been in a band called Fuel, not the big Fuel, but another Fuel before that. And my drummer, Dave Lisinski, who was on two Hades records with me and was my roommate for years. And I'm like, you guys, we're all on the same page mentally. Let's start a band and see where it goes. And we made this concept record called Dethroned. And I just came on the other night, actually, on my shuffle. And I'm like, man, this was some really, really cool shit. And I remember to your question, to the point of your question, being in front of the mic for those sessions and thinking, I can do whatever I want. I don't need to worry about the light going on to record and the pressure of all of that. Uh, Dan Lorenzo had asked me to sing on his first solo record, which I think was called Cassius King, actually. I think you're right. Yeah, the record was called that, but it was Dan Lorenzo. Yeah. And I remember that. I was already not really cool with Dan. Like, we were kind of falling apart in terms of friendship. And he was like, oh, I got this riff, you know, and it used to be a nonfiction song that never really happened. But I knew you liked that riff. You want to sing to it? And it was sort of like he was doing me a massive favor to let me sing on this song. But I did like the riff a lot. So I'm like, I'll sing it. I don't want any money. I'm not getting paid. And I remember showing up to do this song at our friend's studio. God rest his soul. He passed away. Bad cancer stuff. He puts me in the studio. He goes, I need an hour to work on guitar sounds. And then I'm going to get you in front of the mic. So go practice in the booth. And then when I'm ready for you, I'll hit you. Then Dan's not even there. And Dan's paying for the studio time. So I go back and I'm singing. I'm singing. I'm practicing. He goes, all right, I'm done with the guitars. Let's go and track. And I added a lot of, I, I always doubled my vocals, right? To give them some thickness and girth. Mm -hmm. So I doubled all my vocals. I doubled all my harmonies. I had a whole bunch of accentuating, you know, vocal tracks and stuff in there. And then Dan walks in and now we're probably three hours into the session. And he's freaking out about the money he's paying for this. Mm. And he's like, I didn't think this song was going to be so vocal heavy. And I'm like, dude, you asked me to sing on the song. I'm doing it for free. I wrote all the words. I wrote all the melodies and harmonies. Like, 
let me finish it and God bless, do whatever you want. But I never forget the grief he gave me. And I remember thinking at that very moment in front of the mic, like, thank God I don't got to deal with this anymore. Like, I'm just going to do this song. I'm going to fucking kill it. And I'm going to walk the fuck out. And I honestly think that's the best song on that record. If I do say so myself that's and not of me per se, but it's just got the greatest riffs and the greatest hooks. And I sang my fucking ass off on it. So anyway, yeah, that's wow. probably the, the autumn hour is probably when I found myself, but I saw a turning of the tide with that Dan Lorenzo solo record where I was like, I don't need to worry about all the stress people bring to my fucking world. Yeah. I'm just going to try to eliminate the stress I bring to my own world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like to just chime in and sort of like, you know, add some flair to exactly where your head is at as a singer. When it's interesting when you're like you were learning the control stuff and then you were listening to like other singers, me and Solis and whoever to kind of just make all the Watchtower material work. And then you had to fire producers and, and get to know other producers. And on top of do a good job at the mic, you, there's you sounds a lot of pressure. Sounds <laughs> like you were having to wear many hats and it, you know, it, it wasn't really about finding your voice at that point in your career. So, you know, when I was working with the Watchtower guys and, and I was recording, it was, those, those guys weren't there helping the engineer and f firing the engineers or the producers. <laughs> they were, they were not there. I, I was left to, you know, I knew the songs already. They knew we were well rehearsed. So that's, that's another different, I just want people to realize that you've had, you've had very little to no rehearsal unless you guys rehearsed in Germany. We did rehearse in Germany, yeah. but it wasn't quick. It was quick. Yeah. So, yeah. So finding your finding your voice and, it, you know, I had never really, other than vocal melodies for those old Watchtower tunes, I'd never written lyrics and melodies together uh, because the Watchtower guys always wrote the lyrics way back in the day. Sure, sure. I, when I started working with the toys, uh, it was, you know, I was... You know, there was the bass player wrote some lyrics, the guitar player wrote some lyrics, but you know, the rest of it was, uh, yeah, we need lyrics, Jason. You're the singer. What the hell are you gonna do? And really, for the first time, that was when I I'm getting, I'm getting to the point. That was the attractive part. Was that I was, you know, this right. hey, it's wide open. Them. Yeah, and and I start to find myself as a singer. You you also mentioned. Uh, singing high all the time and then you want to try other stuff it's ditto i when you know like like songs like scared and take me drunk and and there's a there's a there's not many but there's a few on that first toys record finding my chest voice you know using lower registers like you were talking was new to me because I was just used to singing high all the time. One, I wanted to sing high all the time. I was 19, 20 years old, and all my idols were Getty Lee and Rob Halford and Jeff Tate. And, you know, so, of course, I wanted to sing in the stratosphere. But 
when I started to like, you know, find songs writing that had these real melodies to them or what I thought were real melodies, I had to find my chest voice. So as you're finding yourself as a singer and demoing those songs on your own, I think that's a beginning of a pattern because I record all my own vocals for like the Cassius King stuff and just everything. Now I do it like literally three feet from where I sit. So Damn. I'm producing my own vocals. I'm writing and producing my own vocals. And you know what? No one is going, Hey, yeah, that sucks. And this sucks. Can you do that again? Because there's this, uh, you know, we're longer in the tooth now, you know, we've, We've been doing this a long time. I'll just say it, 40 years. You and I, we've been doing this our whole life. So by this time, don't you think you can leave me by myself and let me write my own goddamn melodies? Right, right. Double it or triple it or harmonies and you know do zingers here and whatever I want. That was kind of my point. It could take half of what you would in years of your career to actually realize your own self-worth internally as a vocalist 100 100 dude it's it's really weird it is but you know it's it's to me it's all about just being comfortable in front of the mic and not having any pressure if you don't have that pressure you can do miraculous things you know what i mean but when yeah. you got somebody looking over your shoulder like come on i'm paying for this time ah! like, right it's just it's your whole mojo up and it's not healthy or good Although you know. I, I respect the producers that I've worked with, that as I'm sure that you you know you you can't say fuck you and walk out because you got some work to do and time is money in studio, right? But again, <laughs> yes, exactly. again, yeah, again, I, I'm familiar with that again. Shit, sure. I'm sure. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a great story that I've read a few times because I'm such a fan. But when when they were when Iron Maiden was recording the the number of the Beast record, that scream that Bruce does. I know the story. I know, you know the, the story. story, right? It's the, it's re, your story is reminding me of that story where uh, Martin Birch is telling him again, again, and Bruce is about to have a nervous breakdown, and he hits that scream that you hear at the end of uh, or is it? The start of number of the beast, yeah, yeah, and uh, of course that scream is you know famous and it's amazing, uh, but it took a hell of a lot of work and a lot of pain and a lot of, as you said earlier, again, again, again from the producer, but the results paid off. Yeah, he brought him to that point of utter frustration. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that's, and that's what it was. I think Bruce says that the scream is born more out of frustration than it is out of any vocal technique. It's just like, sure. I'm going to strangle this motherfucker. That's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but that's what Martin wanted, and he got it. Mm -hmm. Jack Frost, I'll tell you, beat the living shit out of me in the studio, man. It was always like, like take that again, take that again. And I'm like, dude, I know what I just laid down is good. And that was, to me, the key thing that I learned when I got to do my own recording in my little 25-foot square space here. Um, I can take my time doing it. Nobody's over my back. And I can be kind of harder on myself than I normally would be. You know what I mean? Like, if I don't feel it was good, it doesn't matter. I got all the time in the world. Yeah. Let me try it again and hit it better and make my enunciation better and I'm just a lifelong learner kind of guy with everything in life, not just music and singing. 
but I always think I can do better and I want to strive to be better. I never feel like I'm great. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, well, I, I think you, I think you said just as much a minute ago when I asked you, when did you feel that you found your voice or felt confident finally in your vocal? And I was honestly kind of surprised that you, that you referenced a point so late in your career um, so that tells that's, me that's that why you, I had to jump in and say, that's like normal. I feel yeah. like that's a normal thing that like, I don't, I didn't like anything I, I, I technically wrote till I was like 30 years old. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Same. But it just goes to show, you know, in Alan's case that, you know, he just made the point that he's a constant learner and, and, uh, and, and that was a perfect illustration of that. I think all of us, you know, we're all creative in our own ways. You guys are singers and I, I'm creative in a different way, but we probably all can look back at uh, some of our early work and sort of cringe a little bit. You know, I think that's just part of the creative process and you don't get to where you are without those missteps along the way. It's part of the learning experience. But I thought it was interesting that Alan said that his, you know, he found, he finally found himself and felt most confident at a, at a, at a point later in his career than I would have guessed. Kind of an interesting sort of like roll on, onto the table here, uh, uh, a card I'm going to play, if you will, is when you think about, you know, the the collective age of early Def Leppard is like 14 or 15 or something, and they're making this big record, their first record, and it was a hit, and the next thing you know, they ha they have to quit high school and go on tour. They do, they, are, do they cringe <laughs> right with their idols you know do yeah. they cringe does joe elliott cringe when he listens to the first record i mean i think the answer's in the set list they don't play any of that stuff <laughs> and i mean how frustrating is that for all of us def leppard fans that love those first two records i mean they'll throw you a bone once in a while but by and large they ignore especially the first record Wow, it's uh, too bad. You know, I saw them on this stadium tour, and they did play. Uh, they played "Let It Go." Uh, they and actually they played "Switch 65, which I was surprised. With um, the, the song with no vocals. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. But um, did they do uh, "Bringing On a Heartbreak"? Yes, they did that. Okay. Of course. Well, yeah. that, that's that's. But I don't think they did. If they were going to do anything off the first, it would have been wasted or in Rock Brigade, and I don't think they did either one of those. Okay. Well. But yeah, so I think they, unfortunately, I think they do cringe at some of that stuff, and I think some of that stuff is great. I feel like you know, yeah, at some point you have to leave room for where you are now, just as much as you have to leave room for the favorites from your your catalog and that is probably not fun to have to make that set list yeah. unless you're fucking billionaires like Def Leppard. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Of a, of a different issue they might have. Um, but I think that the, the point is, is, is like we were kind of prodding Alan to get to is, you know where you are where you are now is probably way more comfortable on building how confident you are uh with your voice by just the way you write what you want to write what lyrics you want to write and all of that type of a thing um, well yeah yeah
Yeah, I, I think that's safe to say. I mean, it's easier to, to walk in your own shoes than to try and wear someone else's. So, you know, it's especially something I'm not a singer, but I would imagine if you're singing, you know, you want to believe in the words you want to, you know, you, you want to make sure that what you're projecting and what you're singing is something you're not embarrassed to sing or, or isn't your style or whatever, you know, that there is it, once you tailor the whole package and it's your, not just your voice, but your lyrics and your emotion and all the other stuff that goes into that. And you have ownership of the whole thing. Then I think you're in the driver's seat. Alan, do you, do you feel like, do you feel like producers and even other band members that you have worked with, whether it was, a knockdown drag out or a frustrating moment because they were, they were poking at you a little harshly or they're overly suggestive to think, do you feel like those suggestions, if you will, uh, helped you get the, the, the great end game? Uh, and, and, and when you second part would be, and when you think back, are you, are you, how do you feel? Are you grateful that they pushed you? Uh, because now you know what works for your voice or, you know, you where you are now is a com much comfortable place, of course, for the reasons that we brought up. But do you feel like, you know, that was part of a building block of, you, you know, the stories, the, the hellish stories of again, you know, or whatever, or, or, you know, Dan's suggestions about, you know, you working your ass off and then maybe they felt like not to pick on Dan, but it could be anyone saying something like, Oh, I don't want to mail. I don't want the vocals all doubled or, Hey, try that, try this thing, or don't do harmony here. Do you feel like suggestive parts that you worked hard on, or you were kind of married to that they took off later? Did you come to terms with that? You, your turn. Yeah, yeah. So real quick, so I did this record called Minds Mirrors. It hasn't even really come out yet. It's probably 10 or 11 years old now. And I, I got to be honest, I didn't say this earlier. That guitar player at the time was like a 24-year-old kid from Hungary who hired me to do a song, and then it became a whole album. And he was the one who turned me on to home recording. So that was the game changer for me, where I can hit the stop button, the, the record button all on my own, nobody else around me to influence me whatsoever. So yeah, there's a value to that for sure. There's also the value of, I mean, I, the Germany guy, Tom, I, I get that whole story. It was, it was definitely brutal, <laughs> but so was Jack Frost when I did the Seven Witches stuff. I will tell you that learning from guys that have a different maybe vision for what the song is as you're recording should be embraced and you should also have the balls to stand up for what you think is the right thing too so uh, over the years there were a lot of stuff and especially with nonfiction, where we let stuff go i'm pitchy in certain moments and i i hear those songs now and i'm like ah like why did we leave that on the tape but I remember being so frustrated at that point. It was like, oh, that's the best we're going to get out of this guy, basically. And I never should have compromised for that. I should have stayed there until I got it right. But the, the pressure sometimes just fucks your whole pitch up. Not to make an excuse, but it was not going to happen. And I don't, I don't think I had the right mindset to find the path to make it happen at that time, if that makes yeah. any sense. So we left some stuff on some of these records where I listen to it to this day and I, I can't listen to it because it sucks. Now, there's also a guy named Tim Gillis 
God rest his soul, his year anniversary of his death is just a couple of days ago. He had blue, big blue mini studios where he did a lot of recording with nonfiction in Hades and stuff and my all time most stuff we did there. And Tim taught me basically that I had a condition called Haas Mueller. Do you know what that is, Jay? Like, no. So it's where you have sounds coming in through your headphones like you have on your head right now. And they come directly into you. Your ear interprets them in a different way than where, when they're hitting you straight into your face. So he would take these two speakers and I would track all of my stuff with him without headphones. And he put these right. two speakers out of phase in front of me. So there's actually live sound coming at me, but because they're out of phase, because the mic is facing toward me, the mic doesn't really pick up the sound off the speakers. Mm -hmm. And I can just sing in the room and hear my voice in the room. And my pitch was dramatically improved, mm -hmm. dramatically. So he taught me, he's like, you have this condition, here's how we can compensate for it. And that was a big game changer for me, man, from that point forward. How, did, were how, does, how did he diagnose you? with that because i kept going a little bit sharp on ah, stuff okay and he's like let's try this and see if it works like he didn't know he's not a doctor right. he goes oh, i know this condition exists and maybe you have it and let's try it this way and as soon as we did that and i had the speakers just hitting me in the yeah. room live i was on point with my pitch i don't know why whatever no but. there no there is truth to this i just didn't know it had like a medical medical term you know uh but you know if i'm pitchy on something and maybe you'll recall doing this sometimes you know how when you take one off so you can hear yourself in the room to like hear yeah. make sure your tone whatever so you can kind of hear the live instead of what's coming back at you your own voice through the mic through the processor and back here in the room is not going to lie hearing your own voice in the room just wherever you are so if sometimes if i'm struggling with a pitch on on a certain note it can be it's usually one note it's yeah. usually one thing and i'll take one off and then it'll be sometimes it's like a, and it's usually sharp right sometimes it's just a semitone you know it's like a half note you know uh, and but just by hearing it in the room so the process you're talking about i've heard of a hundred times i think uh chris cornell would do that i think philip anselmo used to do that and and, and it's like they would have wedges and i would imagine out of phase just like live concert wedges blaring the tunes at you with your voice in it like you're doing a show sort of yep. karaoke but of the tracks that you're recording and um and you would record even with a 58 like a live microphone and just sing your shit and they that would you they would use that on international release records like the yes, hit, hit songs were recorded with what they used live basically initially absolutely so they could get the right energy so they could get the right tones so they could get yeah. the right pitch Yes, that's right. And when I do it here in my little booth here, yeah. I always have one can on, one can off. Because I don't have the out-of-phase speakers here and stuff. Yeah. You know, so yeah, I, I always sing like that so I can hear myself in the room. It's Amazing. a big well, game changer. And sometimes when you're novice, when you're just a young singer and you don't you don't know this, and and maybe sometimes there's not really anyone there really producing you, making sure. I mean, unless there's you're paying someone there to go again, you know, because <laughs> because, because they they know what's happening. Well, he's pitchy here. 
it, 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 before they would say again, nope, sharp, again, nope, sharp, again, you know, and that is actually helpful. But if they're not trying to, uh, uh, someone who is who cared enough about it, this isn't working. Let's try something different. Pull one ear off, or let's set up a monitor rig, and da 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 da. Exactly. You're learning that. See, so this process of hell a singer has to go through just by not knowing shit and being <laughs> like tormented by producers and sometimes band members. Later on, I mean, with technology got better, home recording is just the way to go for a singer. Totally. You need the confidence and you need the skill, obviously, but you need the confidence and the ability to just kind of like not worry. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Alan, it's been awesome catching up with you talking about uh, vocalization, writing songs, uh, how it happened, where you're from, your your whole building blocks of how awesome of a man that you are and, have, you, always, and have always been, in my opinion. Um, where can anyone buy the Jersey Metal Book? So the easiest thing is jerseymetalbook.com just jerseymetalbook.com. You can get t-shirts there, the CD there. I do have a record coming out. I'm only on one song on the 20th. So that's next week. Okay. Uh, it's a band called Barnabas Sky. It's basically a German guy. It's a solo record. I think it's his second solo record. Okay. And there's a whole bunch of other singers on it besides me. I'm only on one song. Cool. And I did it probably about a year ago. But I'm really, really stoked about it. And it's, again, like you said, it's a song where I went to my friend's studio out in Pennsylvania, who is an old Hades roadie, really great dude, uh, who just tracked me on this thing. And it's it's a, a political kind of theme, but the political theme is basically that I feel like so much division is happening in the country right now, and it's deliberate. And I think you need to fight against this kind of division, like, because we're all fucking Americans, we're all humans, and I just have this whole fucking overwhelming thought, and I wrote this song called One or the Other, meaning that you're not either one or the other, like, you're many different things, and we need to accept that with each other, you know what I mean? Like, we're not black and white, you know, cut it down, that's simple, and then fucking exploit us. So I wrote this song, I'm really proud of the lyrics. I love this. The, the record is good. There's a lot of, it's very kind of a commercial metal record. Oh. So it's a little different for me, but he sent me a few songs to try and I didn't like the first couple. And the third one, I was like, that's the tune. So that comes out on the 20th. It's Barnabas Sky. Uh, I forget the name of the album, but you can easily Google or DuckDuckGo Barnabas Sky and find it. Nice. Nice. Awesome. awesome. Yeah, man, uh, I really enjoyed getting to know you. I know you and Jason have a long history. This is my first time speaking to you, but uh, I, I enjoyed getting to know you a little bit as a person. I loved hearing your stories. Um, I I can't wait to look at the book. Uh, I, I think that what you and Frank did uh, is really cool that you're documenting a scene that's worthy of recognition, and it's a scene that you obviously have some personal uh, passion for. And when you have passion for something creative it always turns out good so i'm looking forward to that i think a lot of other people will look forward to it as well uh, jerseymetalbook.com is that is that where you can find it jerseymetalbook.com alan thank you so much for being with us today on behalf of my co-host jason mcmaster i'm metal dave glessner along with our guest today alan tecchio on the talk louder podcast